So today I'm talking with Joe Abrams, who is a, a, an illustrious man from, from, from a diverse set of areas. And um, I've even actually got a, a list of things that Scott's given me to, to ask you about and maybe put you on the spot a little bit. Um, Joe, why don't you take us away and take it away and tell us uh, who you are and, and what you've done? Uh, sure. Um, I guess my, my real background as an entrepreneur began in the early 1980s when I co-founded a small entertainment software company called the Software Toolworks. My cousin and I started the company in his garage in Sherman Oaks, California, Southern California, doing, doing at first programming tools for operating systems before the Mac, before the IBM PC, for operating systems like CPM and even uh, systems before that. And we grew that company uh, organically. Eventually, we got to six or seven people. We moved out of his garage. And by 1988, we had grown uh, to uh, about $2 million in revenue. And at that point, we started branching out from actual pure publishing um, tools, uh, C compilers, macro assemblers, things like that, to actually publishing applications which people were writing using our tools. So we had two hit products uh, in the late 80s. One was Chess Master, a chess playing program. The other was Mavis Beacon Teaches Typing, a typing tutorial product. And we needed to re raise a little bit of capital. We had grown the company all by sweat equity up until then. And through a combination of circumstances, we actually did a reverse merger in 1988. Uh, we raised a couple of million dollars. Uh, we went public, and we had about a $10 million market cap. And then using uh, that public currency as well as access to the capital markets, uh, from 1988 till 1994, we grew the company to over $150 million in revenue. And then in 1994, we sold that company to uh, Pearson, the big British publishing company, media company, for $460 million. And uh, then I started working with small uh, technology companies for the most part and um, as both an investor and also helping in, in business development and other areas. And in 1999, I co-founded a company called eUniverse, a very early-stage Internet uh, company. We later renamed that company Intermix, and our most famous uh, website was a site called MySpace. And again, we started that I've never company. Heard of this. What's this MySpace? I've never heard of that. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's 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 sort of interesting um, because in in when when uh, started um, Software Toolworks and went around to talk to investor investment banks and venture capitalists about the company, nobody had heard of the category called entertainment software. Believe it or that, uh, believe it or not, nineteen eighty. 5, uh, Electronic Arts wasn't public or a big company. Um, uh, there was no, of course, Take-Two, uh, Activision. Um, and what would happen would be I would go around to people and I would say, we're an entertainment software company, and they'd say, wait a minute, you're not Microsoft and you're not Disney. Uh, we really don't know what you are. And the same thing happened uh, when we went around talking to people about MySpace back in 2004, 2003. People would say, what's social networking? We really haven't heard about social networking. And 
really our concept from the very early days of the company was to create um, a viewership. And in fact, by the time we started germinating the idea for, for MySpace, we had 40 or 50 million people a month coming to our various websites. There were sites like yourbabyphotos.com and um, uh, game sites and health and nutrition sites, a whole host of, of sites. And our idea was kind of Actually, uh, can I just jump in before, sure. before we go down this? Because this is a, this is a big story, and it's, uh, there's a lot to, to ask here. But I've actually got a, a bigger, more more personal question I'd like to ask before, if I may. Sure. I'm dying to know: was it your company that published Defender of the Crown? Defender of the Crown, no. Defender of the Crown, that was uh, Cinemaware. Okay. So, did you publish Cinemaware? Cinemaware was C- Cinemaware was actually we we at Software Toolworks in 1989. We we acquired a company called Mindscape, right? Uh, entertainment Mindscape company. that published Defender of the Crown. Yes, Mindscape distributed Defender of the Crown, correct? On the Amiga. So you did distribute it. You didn't you didn't write it or manage the programming team. That's you did correct. It. So that's correct. So I am correct in associating Mindscape with Defender of the Crown, but you didn't yes. actually write it. That's correct. And so this was your company that was distributing like the breakthrough game on the Amiga. Yes, we were doing. We were very, very early stage Amiga developers, which I know well, you're from I, Australia, I and Amiga was a very, very uh, important uh, hardware platform in Australia. Uh, you have no idea. It was my childhood, so uh, <laughs> I hope I get the, the privilege of uh, buying you. A, 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 since I live in the Caribbean, a rum and coke sometime. Okay, not a Foster's though. No, 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 none of that stuff. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, can you tell me more about those days? I mean, I'm, I'm such a, a maniac. Sure. I told Scott um, that I, I, when I was uh, last time in the Bay Area, I, I went and drove around and went and saw the, took photos of the offices where um, the Amiga was founded in, I think it's in Sunnyvale, and uh-huh. then um, went over to where Epix was. Oh, in, sure. In, uh, I forget, that, that's an apartment building now. And I actually yeah. even found the house of Jack Tramiel and went up and had a look at that really? as well. Well, yes, um uh, let's see. Well, uh, l- let me see some of the st- some of the stories. There are some of the stories I don't mind telling you uh, for publication, and then there are other stories we'll have to do over a rum and coke. How's that? <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, we actually we when we when we started the company and and we started publishing things like uh, games um, back in the early 1980s. There were very, very few retail outlets for software products. Um, this was before in the U.S. Uh, Egghead Software and some of the software-only uh, specialty stores. None of the big-box retailers like Walmart carried software. It was very, very difficult to get distribution. So I was always looking about uh, how to get distribution. And um, I actually wrote a letter to Zenith Corporation, which which not only made the Zenith computers, but also made the old Heathkit computers. And we, we wrote them a letter, uh, my cousin and I, and we said, you know, we're, we're, a, um, we're a software company, and we're writing these programs, and we have them for sale, and we'd like to maybe leverage your, um, your distribution channel for the hardware, because certainly people who are buying hardware will be interested in buying software. Are you interested in being our distributor? And they wrote back a letter that said... Uh, there's no money to be made in software. All the money in this business is in the hardware business, and so they declined to distribute it. Yeah, right. And so they declined it. And so, and and in fact, pr- 
probably up through uh, the late, I would say up through the mid-1990s, people really thought that the money in this business was going to be made in the hardware. And uh, so we were very fortunate that we got into the software business at the right time. And back then, uh, you know, all of these new platforms, I mean, we were developing for the Atari 8-bit, Commodore 64, Atari ST, Amiga, Apple II, Apple II GS, Apple III, PC, PC Junior, a whole host of platforms. So every time we would develop a game, we would have to go out and find programmers who were specialized in that particular hardware. And it was quite an, uh, an interesting development process. And one of the things which I think made us successful is that we developed across many, many platforms. And as a result, what um, somebody would see somebody doing a game on the Amiga, and even if they were developing for the Commodore 64, once they could see an effect, like some form of animation or, or, some, or some technique that was used, they would sit down and they would say, why can't I make that work in the Commodore 64? And so our, pro- our products looked very, very state-of-the-art for the, each hardware platform that we were developing. So on that point, I've got to ask you, I mean, I was, I was pretty tied into the demo scene back then. Um, and we, we always looked at you guys like out in California doing this amazing stuff. I mean, you, you have no idea the influence you have on my life. Like my mother will never, if, if my mother meets you, she'll be really angry at you because like I, my childhood was lost to like your stuff. <laughs> you have no idea. Um, but we, we looked at you guys as like making all these amazing games, but you didn't really seem to get the demo scene or any of the stuff that we were doing. Like wh- how did you view like the European demo scene back then? Like well, Amiga and Commodore 64, they only my, I only have those two friends of reference. Right. Yes, it was, um, you know, it was kind of interesting because for us, we were selling, I would say that in, in, we were probably selling 10 or 15 to 1 on the PC for everyone that we sold on the Amiga. So for us, 90 plus percentage of, of our sales was for the IBM PC. And so even though there were pockets of Commodore 64 and pockets of Apple, and it tended to be almost uh, country by country, not even territory by territory. So, you know, Germany was a huge Atari ST market. France was a huge um, um, uh, Apple market. The Amiga was not that big in the UK, but the Amiga was very, very big um, in Australia. And at that point, the Australia market was relatively small. I opened up our first office there in, in, in uh, I think, 1987 or 1988, and, and a, a good-selling title on the Amiga might sell two or 3,000 copies in Australia, where in the U.S. a good-selling title on on the PC would sell a hundred thousand copies, and a good selling title on the Amiga in the US would only sell two or three thousand copies. So, so what about we, Germ- I mean Germany? You'd sell a lot, and I mean in UK was pretty strong from our perspective. Well, not overall. Yeah, Germany the, the 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 German market was really the 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 big market was the Atari ST was actually bigger than the Amiga, um, and and the game market. 
there was a different at that time there was a different type of game market in Europe. Um, they were the type of games which sold in Europe were much more movie oriented, less strategy oriented. Where in the U.S. they seemed to be more interested in long term gameplay than actual graphics. And I think it probably came out of the fact that that market was originally the Commodore 64 on cassette tape. I don't know if if you're old enough to remember Commodore 60 loading Commodore uh, 64 I, games I, I had one. on cassettes. Okay, <laughs> it's, it's still so, at home. So and it, and in fact the, the precursor to that was of course the the Timex Sinclair. I don't know if you even remember well, that machine. It was the Big right. Okay. Yes. And I actually no, I started on the Commodore 64. Yeah. I started in. I was high end. I actually had a Commodore 64 and a 1541 yeah. disk drive. Yes, but those were and and in fact, um, you know, at some point you probably should try to get a hold of Bobby Kotick at Activision because mm. he started. He is very good friends with Jack Tremiel. Oh, really? And uh, or was good friends with Jack's son and actually started. In the in the Amiga business, and in fact, his company—I even forgot what his company was called. It's been so long ago. Actually, took over the Activision brand name. So uh-huh. Bobby could tell you a lot of things uh, about the very early days of the Amiga as well. Hmm. I mean, I, I could talk to you for hours about this. Um, yes, I could tell. A little bit mindful of our listeners. Um, I just want to ask you then one question. I mean, you, you sure. went through a, a, a big wave of that time. Um, you saw, you, you went through, uh, I don't know whether you call it anything like a bubble, but it certainly was a, a growth of the industry. But you yes. were on it from the side that I understood better. Um, you, weren't, you weren't out there competing with Microsoft and doing that sort of stuff. How did that feel? How, how was it when all this was going on? Did you recognize, or when did you recognize that Microsoft was something serious? Um, well, b- believe it or not, um, we were back in eighty one or eighty two we were close to the same size as Microsoft. There were more games being sold uh, um, you know back in the early eighties Microsoft was really focused on being a tools company it wasn't until they did the deal with IBM I think the IBM PC maybe in nineteen eighty two or something um, but one of the things which which I've tried to do over my career is to segregate. There are two types of competitors um, that I look at. One type is the traditional business that's going into new technology. So whether it's a movie company going into the software business or uh, you know, a book publishing company going into uh, the social networking business. Um, those type of companies don't scare me. In fact, I look at them as opportunities. I've done a lot of things in the digital photography business competing against Kodak, and it's, it's relatively easy to, con- to compete against traditional companies going into new media or new technology businesses because they just don't understand the culture. There's a certain culture that it takes to create products um, for new technologies. It's a combination of engineering and creativity, and, and managing that whole process is, is unique. And that's why I think even today you don't see people coming out of Procter & Gamble to be heads of entertainment software companies or heads of Internet companies 
people have tried. Uh, you know, there people have tried to get traditional managers to come into those kind of environments. They just don't seem to succeed. But the other type of competitors that do scare me are competitors which have grown out of that industry, so that the Microsofts and the Googles and things like that. And those companies I tend to try to stay away from. So we never tried to compete in the flight simulator market with Microsoft. And I would never try to compete on the Internet side of, of a business in the search engine business with Google. I mean, they've grown up in that space. But if it does not concern me at all when Disney says we're going to go into the entertainment software business or if Disney were to say um, we're going into um, you know, some form of an Internet venture, uh, it, it doesn't concern me because I just don't think that the bigger companies have the, you know, it's not in their DNA. And, in fact, I've had conversations with people within those organizations, and what they've, what they've said to me off the record is their greatest difficulty is attracting and keeping people who have the skills to compete in those kind of genres. Because when you think about it, if I'm Viacom and I decide I want to do software products and I run an ad and I try to get a, a bunch of programmers in that kind of environment, I'm not going to get the same kind of, of um, I'm not going to get the same quality of person that I'm going to get if I say, look, I, I want to put eight people in a rented house and I want you guys to do the next killer game, and here's a whole bunch of pizza and a whole bunch of coffee, and I'll see you in six months or eight months. You just don't get that kind of energy and imagination if you're working at Viacom in an office building in Manhattan and you're expected to come in at 9 o'clock in the morning and leave at 6 o'clock at night. So that's kind of a long-winded answer to your question, but I, I, would, I would avoid big competitors in in businesses that are um, in which they've grown up in. So I would have people come to me all the time and say, I could write a better spreadsheet than Microsoft Word. And I would say, I'm sure you could write a better spreadsheet than Microsoft Word, but there's no way that I'm going to compete on the sales and marketing side of, of that juggernaut. So I'm not going to compete in word processing or in database software with Oracle or whatever, we'll find a niche where we can compete and, and succeed. And one of the things about all these businesses is that there's plenty of room uh, uh, to compete and, and make money and build big companies without tackling these guys head on. That's really interesting because I just uh, interviewed uh, Jason from 37signals and his DNA is very much coming out of internet, internet development and uh, everything you're saying says to me that uh, it would he would be a tough guy to compete with. He's only small; they're ten guys, um, mm -hmm. but it it resonates exactly. Whereas he, he yeah, he's, he's the opposite of any kind of a Viacom, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, I've just I, I've done it in digital photography. I've done it in, in solar. I've done it in in the internet space. I've done it in uh, consumer software. It's it's. If it doesn't matter the market size, and it doesn't matter the 
the the size of the competitor, but it does matter the type of competitor that you're going up mm-hmm. against. Very interesting. All right, um, I need to take a quick detour because uh, Scott's insisted that I've asked you this question. Um, uh-huh. you, you have some story about Che Guevara. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, um, before you start, I actually visited his uh, tomb in Cuba. Okay, okay. Well, my I, my first my first um, boss that I ever had was from Cuba, and he was in exile, and he was a CPA, and he had grown up, uh, spent all his life in Cuba, and when uh, Castro took over, he applied uh, for an exit visa, and. What would happen would be when you applied for an exit visa back in the late 50s, uh, two things would happen. Either they would take you away from your family and put you in a sugarcane field for some amount of years, or they would take you and they would, if you had a particular skill, um, they would, they would uh, take you to a remote part of Cuba and let you apply that trade but in a place where you couldn't talk to anybody or see anybody. So in this particular case, he was a CPA, and he was very good. And so one day they came and they took him and they said, you're not going to be running this this sugarcane factory at uh, the remote far end of the island. And so he basically packed a suitcase and left and, and went out there, and he, he started running this, this factory, and about three months later, three Jeeps come rolling up. One, And in the front Jeep is Che Guevara, who was the Minister of Economics. And he walks out, and he's got a machine gun, he's got the bandolier strap, and he's got the Army uniform. And he walks into the office, and across, all around the office, he's got um, graphs showing production and costs and things like that, and... Che Guevara starts at one end of the office and walks around and looks at all the graphs, and then he walks over to the desk, and, of course, my my friend, my boss, is sitting there shaking because he has no idea what's going on, and he reaches over and he shakes his hand and he says, congratulations, of every place I've toured, this is the only place I've been able to come in and find everything that I needed to know about the company without asking one question. And he turned around and he left. And so I've always remembered that story and what I've tried to be able to do in the companies where I've managed or or uh, or helped mentor people who are managing their company uh, is to develop some kind of a system whereby anybody can figure out what is going on with the company without having to call somebody and say, how are sales? Are sales trending up? How are profits? How is traffic? Whatever the key metric is by which you need to measure your business, you want to be able to develop some way to represent that <clears throat> and distribute that so that um, you can communicate it in the fewest possible words. Well, I've got to say, Joe, if you'd been telling me this story 40 years ago and uh, before you'd done... Um uh, release Defender of the Crown, I would be laughing at you for <laughs> taking business advice from Cuban socialists, but um, given your track record, I'll, uh, I'll give you a right. pass on that one. Right. No, I'm always, you know, you know I'm, it, it, I, I, I just, I guess 
part of it is because I have an, um, an independent entrepreneurial spirit, and I always resented when when I was working for somebody if they would come over and say, um, you know, what's going on? How's it going? What do you do? You know, things like that. Um, I always felt like th- that implicit oh, right. in something like that is you're not you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing or we don't trust that you're doing it so right. i always tried when when i started managing people and to this day is to try to understand what people need in order to make their job easier that's that's like what that. we need to do is is you know so and and i know for example my cousin who really is the engineer the the programmer if I would walk over to him and say, when's the product going to ship or is it on time, that would make him, you know, crazy as opposed to saying, you know, is there anything I can do? You know, what's the bottleneck? Is there a way that with other resources or I can help smooth the and make your job easier because implicit in doing something like that is the fact that I know you're doing the best you can now, how can I do the best I can to help you? Okay, so assuming that, how do you know that the what? How do you know they are doing the best they can? Well, well, one way. Well, look, there are a number of ways you can do it. First is experience. Okay, you know, if you if you have experience in doing the kind of jobs that people are doing, that is always the best way. The other way is by asking people to break down jobs or assignments into things which are manageable. And, and milestone dates. So having somebody say that it's a 15-man month project, you know, two people, seven and a half months, that's one thing. Having people say, in order to deliver this product in a year, that means it's got to go to Goldmaster in 10 months, which means it has to go to... Uh, beta in eight months, which means it has to go to alpha in six months, which means that we have to have a spec by such and such a day with all of the built-in things which you need, whether it's third-party approval on intellectual property, whether it's license approval uh, you know, by a hardware manufacturer, whether uh, you know, it's compatibility with some other things that you're trying to do. Um, and you basically back it up into small manageable parts. And if someone says, I'll have a spec to you in a week, and the spec comes to you in two weeks, well, that tells you that their next milestone is is probably going to be late. And if it is late, then you have a problem, as opposed to saying to people, well, I'm hiring you to do your job, um, and... Uh, you know, I'll see you in seven months. So that's, you know, and and then when it's two weeks late, when the spec is two weeks late and someone says, well, the reason it was two weeks late is because I didn't have enough people on the project, then you can say, okay, where are we going to find the resources to make sure that the next milestone isn't late? Or how can we bring the project back in 
you know, where do we have cushion? Where can we put resources? You where can we do something? Free constraints and all that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so, what, what? And maybe that's one of the reasons why, when people who do not have experience in these kind of industries come in as CEOs, um, having not had that experience to manage those kind of processes, they have a very, very difficult time in grasping with with uh, with with these things. Because most intellectual property pursuits are never done. A book is never done. A movie is never done. A software product is never done. It's never perfect. It's never finished. So the key is having the ability to recognize that it's commercially viable. You know, all you have to do is look at uh, Microsoft's Vista to see that, you know, that an operating system is never done. Okay, whether or not it's commercially viable or not, you know, they're, they're probably a better judge of that or not. But that's the key. You know, there's never right. every bug is found. Everything is perfect. Got it. Um, we're, we're moving through our time here. I feel like this could be, end up being the six-hour interview if we're not careful. But we do have to finish up in, uh, in about 25 minutes. So, okay. Um, why don't you Why don't you tell us um, your, your, your big story? Um, the, about uh, Intermix and, and MySpace, you, you, you started telling us about how um, sure. you helped found Intermix. Now, I'm interested. I want to just ask one quick question. I looked yes. at Brad Green. I think his name is Brad Greenspan. I've looked yes. at his page, and um, he he um, says that he is the, the the one true founder of MySpace. Um, yes. And I know that there's other guys out there who are also um, they are the one true founders of MySpace. So I'm, I'm curious as to who is the the one true founder <laughs> of MySpace. Yes, well, what do they say, right? Um, success has many fathers and failures an orphan. <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, I will, uh, and it's also, uh, it's also interesting because I've done some interviews um, with a reporter for the Wall Street Journal who's publishing a book on it. And so I've had this conversation uh, numerous times. And uh, so I think everybody comes from their own perspective, and Brad and I uh, co-founded the company. So, you know, Brad and I were the first two shareholders. Uh, so, I, again, I will, I'll give you my, my take on it, uh, which basically what we, and, and you have to roll it back a little bit and say, you know, what was, what was the original concept of the company? And like I told you at the beginning, it was, it was more, you know, I, I kind of viewed it as the cable TV model. Let's build a network of viewers, and then we'll have these little stations. So we'll have, uh, you know, a health and nutrition station, and we'll have a, a photo sharing and joke of the day, and we had a, a Beanie Baby site. We had a, a, a video gamers uh, reviewer site called Gamers Alliance. We had a... A challenge ladder called Cases Ladder, where where people could cha- challenge each other in particular video games and move up and down the ladder based on their scores. We had a whole bunch of uh, of these sites, um, and then of course we said, well, we need to try to figure out how to make money out of this. And so the first thing we started to do was we started to try to sell advertising, and we. We started selling advertising, and then, of course, in 2000, that whole model blew up. And so we were having a fairly difficult time selling advertising. 
So we said, okay, let's go and sell uh, um, products. Let's go into e-commerce. And we started uh, uh, to do uh, uh, inkjet cartridges, you know, re- reusable inkjet cartridges. And we, we sold everything from uh, Salt Lake City Olympic berets to health and nutrition products. And we got fairly successful in that, but really well, we didn't feel... I mean, Hydrodome, you did pretty well with Hydrodome, right? Yes. Yeah, well, okay, Hydrodome is a little bit later. We're talking 2001, 2002. Okay. You know, right in the depths of the bubble, okay. So then then we said, well, you know what, we're really, we're really not experts in marketing. Let's go and buy a marketing company. So we bought a marketing company. And the guys who started that marketing company came to work for us, and and they they really helped evolve and into the hydroderm and all of that, but they had an idea that had been percolating in the back of their mind for a social networking site. And of course, this is back before social anybody knew what social networking meant. Was this when I mean when we're talking like Advogato and the, the FOAF protocol, friend of a friend protocol? I mean, were you guys looking at it back then, or were you only looking at it after friends that came around? Uh, we were looking at it before. Right, uh, uh, probably at the same time as Friendster, but we were definitely behind them. Right. In other words, when we launched MySpace, Friendster had already had uh, was out there and starting to grow. And their idea originally for MySpace, uh, for MySpace, they they said, "Look, we have this idea. We're amateur musicians. We think there's an opportunity to do kind of a a, a small thing where." where people who are looking for band members can get together and say, I'm in L.A. and I'm looking for a drummer, and yeah, you know, this is the kind of music I like to play, et cetera, et cetera. So they basically went to Brad and they said, Brad, you know, we have this idea, and what we'd like to do is we'd like to create this idea and plug it into the Intermix network. And there, from there it gets fuzzy. Okay, if you talk to Brad, Brad will say, yeah, they sort of came to me with this idea, but I really had an idea. I, you know, it was really my concept and my implementation of the concept. And, you know, they'll say, no, 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 it was my idea, my implementation of the concept. And, you know, basically we just leveraged off the intermix traffic. Well, Joe, so, I don't know about this because I'm starting to think it was my idea, and I'm thinking <laughs> that I was of my on my bio. Right. Well, and and so what happened was, um, well, the one thing I can tell you is, is it was not my idea. Okay. Okay. So, um, and and so what happened was they plugged it into the network, and inside of three months we could really see that it was going to be bigger than the whole network. So, uh, so you know, we knew we had lightning in the bottle. Was the goal was the goal to build the social network and 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 get traffic so that you can then monetize that traffic? Absolutely. Just to build a social network and a user base. I mean, did you or did you? No. So you wanted it, to grow traffic so that then you could correct. drive that traffic out to your other properties like like Hydrogen. Correct. That was clearly the idea. It was a, it was a, it was started as a marketing vehicle, but it it gradually took over everything else. And in fact, that's what that's why um, the the reason why News Corp bought this bought us was for MySpace, which they had used successfully uh, as a promotional vehicle for some of their TV shows and some of their movie properties. So 
it, it really wasn't until after they bought the company that MySpace went to the next level. So they they were buying it as a marketing and promotional tool and saying, because when you think about it, the number one TV show uh, in the world, of course, is uh, American Idol, right? And that gets no, 30... Excuse me? And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not willing to negotiate on that. It's the A-team from the 1980s, back from okay. when I had the, near my Amiga. All right. American Idol may be number two. All right. So, uh, you know, and that show gets 30 million viewers, okay, so, something like that. And here are these Internet properties that are getting 40 or 50 million viewership, and 90% of them are right in the sweet spot of what every movie company, TV company, advertiser wants to reach. Right. And they're, they're coming there for more than... 45 minutes a day, and they're sharing a lot of information that that uh, people want to know on that site. And so, at the end of the day, it's it's you could make an argument that it's more. Even though the revenues aren't there, they will be someday, and it's probably as valuable as their TV network. So, paying 580 million dollars is, is nothing. I could see it being. I mean, being. Far more valuable in time, but um, well, well, no. I mean, today in today's San Francisco Chronicle, there was an article about how all the local TV stations are laying off fifteen or twenty percent of of their staff because what's happening is they're, you know, people are not watching TV. Right. Well, well, one of the things which is one of the things which is happening, and this, you know, it, like most great ideas, they've happened many times before. Um, when when radio came in and started to compete against newspaper, radio's viewership grew very, very rapidly, but the advertising on radio grew very slowly. It probably took 20 years or 30 years for the advertising revenue to equalize between radio listenership and newspaper readership. When television came in, that was the next fad, and it took probably 10 years this time for advertising revenues to equalize on television viewership versus radio listenership. And now in the Internet, it will probably take between 5 and 10 years for that to equalize but there's another because those models are branding driven, and so there's there's more trust and understanding of metrics that's required, or you know. Belief. No, Whereas no, no, no. I think it's exactly the opposite. I think it's because it's momentum. It's it's. I think a lot of people say I can't get fired for spending fifteen million dollars on this on a Super Bowl ad. You know, nobody will say what were you doing? You know, spending money on the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, to reach, you know, 30 million people or 50 million people for a minute. But if I spent $5 million on an Internet ad campaign, I'd be fired in 30 seconds to, re to reach 10 times as many people for 10 times longer. So what you're saying is then that CPMs are going to dramatically increase. Yes. And, and whether it's CPMs or CPAs, because for the first time advertisers have a way to actually measure the effectiveness of their advertising. And they're right. just starting to realize that now. 
is is saying, well, instead of running an ad that people will TiVo past or become immune to, I can create an ad with a call to action where I can actually measure how many people actually did something. And then on the other side, I can only pay for people who actually do what I want them to do. So, uh, you know, I can go to Coke and I can say, uh, I guarantee you that 50,000 people will enter this sweepstakes, which is sponsored by Coke. I may get 6 million people who see that ad, but I guarantee you that 50,000 of them, I'll run it until 50,000 of them actually enter my contest. And that's how you'll know that not only did I reach 50,000 people, but they did a call for action where they right. saw your logo and your message on that. And this is the first time that an, that an advertiser can actually measure that as opposed to either a Nielsen rating or an impression or a billboard, you know, where they're measuring traffic drive-bys. Um, and once people learn the power of that and how to measure that, what will happen is instead of, you know, 5 or 6% of advertising dollars being spent on the Internet, it'll be 70 or 80%. So it's, 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 it's that kind of dramatic uh, um, uh, shift that's going on in the advertising community that makes it an exciting area. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you a quick, quick question about MySpace, if I may. Yes. Um, now, I, I was reading on Brad Greenspan's site, and he was talking about how they plugged um, MySpace into the various properties uh, that you already had, and, and that's what got it, gave it its initial kick. Yes. Um, but I also understood that a key part was the email deliver the email um, soft or the email company that you'd bought and acquired, and so you were good at getting mail through. Was it was a key driver of signups? Um, the, the fact that you plugged into those properties and then people just uh, informally inviting each other, or was it the whole address book importing process that people were using and then you sending out lots of invites? Yeah, yeah that's, uh, you know, that's an interesting question, and I'm not sure it grew so fast. I mean, you're talking about a site that was growing 10 or 15 million users a month, mm. um, and it's one of those things where we were doing so many things, uh, you know, the viral marketing was working, the email delivery was working, the Internet was exploding in general, um, the functionality of the site was good. But, but one of the, there definitely was a, when, when we started doing this, Friendster was the gold standard. And in five or six months, they became, in effect, a bankrupt company. Right. So we were doing a whole lot of things. I'm not exactly sure what was the big driver. And I guess that's another kind of operating uh, principle that I've had, which, you know, it's sort of like, it's sort of like, when, when you go, you have to go out and tell the story in as many different ways as possible. And I think you have to be creative about the way in which you do it. So, yes, you want to do affiliates, viral marketing, sweepstakes, contests, traditional PR, all of those things. Because when 
when you have something which is working and you're pouring fuel on that fire, it goes crazy. And so I don't usually try to figure out what's the one best thing to do. I try to do as many things as possible and let the market tell me if it's working or not. And then if it's working, it's, it, it, it's like in the old days with software when we got a hit product, I would increase the advertising budget. People tended to decrease the advertising budget because they'd say, I don't need the, I don't need the advertising because uh, my uh, product you, you is selling pour, well. You were pouring gasoline on the fire. Yeah, I was saying, I've got a hot product here. I need to advertise and promote it because that product's pulling the rest of my product line along with it. So I need to support the retailers. I need the retailers talking about it. I want the people, you know, I, I, I want the people in the stores talking about it. I want consumers asking about it, the whole thing. So that's always been kind of my, my philosophy. So... Um, that's what I try to do. So fair point. So now I've got to ask you another big question. Um, you, you've done something that's kind of astonishing, um, that you've hit a like, massive home run through two booms, um, through the first one in, the, in the, 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 the dawn of the computer industry and then with MySpace. Well, I didn't tell you about the third one either. Why, there was another one? Yes. Tell me that. <laughs> sure. Um, about... Fifteen months ago, I took a public a company public in the solar space called Akina Solar, AKNS, a good friend of mine from the software business. And again, if you could believe it, fifteen months ago when I was going around with a solar company, people were asking me, "What's solar, and why should we invest in it, buy it, and believe in it?" And today, that company is a two hundred and fifty million dollar market cap company. Very successful company. Congratulations! So, I don't know. So again, it's a, it. so it's another it's another industry. Um, so I, I've actually in the public markets, I've actually had three companies where when they started, nobody knew what industry they were in, but have have become you know very very big uh, big winners. But I'm, I'm happy to hear that you didn't make you didn't manage to do anything during the the 90s uh, boom at the end of the 90s, did you? Well, the only one, the only one we did was was uh, Intermix, and again, because I come from more, I come from a sweat equity entrepreneurial background. We right. raised seven million dollars at Intermix, but rather than go out and spend two or three million dollars on doing, you know, advertising or traffic acquisition deals, we used our public currency to acquire companies that already had traffic, and that's how we built our network. Hmm. So. Uh, and and I'm a believer in 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 small in in, in small companies that have great management uh, using public currency to build their companies into mid-sized companies. Having done it three times. Why don't times, you tell us a bit more about that? I mean, you've got the audience now of you know 450 uh, most of them CEOs. Um, mm-hmm. Running exactly these kinds of companies that can can bloom into things. What mm-hmm. are you looking for? A lot of these guys, they're cash flow positive. They've got offers running. They're, they're, they're sort of like intermix. They've got they might have Hydroderm or a couple of other things that are running. Um, the CEO's got the, the trains running on time pretty well. He's got time free. You know, he's uh, flying around in his private plane or all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Why would he care about talking to Joe Abrams? Well, the, I mean, this is it, it's it's not. It's not for everybody being the CEO of a public company. It's not for a lot of people. There are, um, you know, there just like everything else, uh, you know, there are good points and bad points. You know, 
the bad points are you're you're in front of the public eye all the time. Uh, you really work for the shareholders, whereas if you're the CEO and you own 100% of the company, you work for yourself. Um, you know, the, you probably have to spend a third of your time in in involved in the things that are necessary to being a public company, investor conferences, things like that. Okay, that's the bad news. The good news is it's a way to build incredible wealth. I mean, you can, you know, you can go back and look at how many shares I had at Software Toolworks when we sold at thirteen dollars a share, and how many shares, you know, Brad and I had of Intermix when we sold, and how many shares Barry Cinnamon has of Akina Solar today, and and see that it's a way to build incredible wealth. That's from the individual standpoint. In terms of raising capital, there's no better way to raise capital than Is in a public still, company. I mean, I, I, I talked with someone about this very point the other day, and, and their feeling was, man, the reporting requirements and all that stuff have gotten so hard that um, I'd rather just be acquired and, and, and vanish away quietly rather than go through and, and, and go public, just given the, the, the environment with, um, in the public markets today. Well, Again, having sold two public companies, I can tell you the easiest and best way to sell a company um, is both of those transactions, by the way, took less than 60 days. And there was almost no discussion of value. Because when you're a public company, the only question is, how much of a premium over my stock price am I going to pay? Whereas when you're a private company, then you get into issues of this is what I'm worth and earnouts and and, you know, all, all these kinds of, of weird mechanisms, and you can spend months and months and months arguing over valuation. At the end of the day, it's still an art, not a science. And when markets get like this, the premiums that companies will pay shrink dramatically, So, which is an advantage when you're public because you can use your currency to buy those companies at cheaper prices. Um, there are there are very few IPOs being done. Most companies, uh, which are mature companies, which already have revenues and profits, are really not candidates for venture capital money anymore. And venture capital comes with its own baggage. So then the only alternative, if you need to raise capital, is the private equity market, which is every bit as onerous or maybe more onerous than the venture capital market. So... There are very, very few alternatives for people today in terms of raising capital. But I would say to you, if, if, if I had a business and it was generating, you know, 5 or $10 million a year in profit, and I was putting all of that in my pocket, and I was flying around on my private jet, I'm not sure I would go public, okay? But if I was doing 5 or $10 million a year in revenue and trying to figure out how am I going to get to $100 million in revenue, and I was making a, a salary, but I wasn't building any wealth, and I was trying to figure out how am I going to get bigger faster and how am I going to compete because all of these businesses have shelf lives. Um, you either have to grow bigger and bigger or you get less significant and less significant. And if you're a one-product, one-market company where you haven't spread your risk around, then you really run into a situation where you're just one one competitor away. A perfect example, by the way, is Friendster. You know, Friendster, I think, turned down a 50 or $60 million offer 
from Google. to buy their company, and three months later they were bankrupt. Yeah. You know, you have a very narrow window as a private company sometimes, and if you don't take advantage of that window, you're doomed. So I like being a public company because there's always access to capital. Yeah, your stock price may be down, but you can always have access to, to capital. And if you do want to trade sell your company, you typically get a two-step bump. You get the bump from being a public company, and then you get a, a bump uh, as a premium that people are willing to pay in the market. So for me, the pain is worth the pleasure. Would you rather be, so you, you're okay with being like a, a thinly traded, you know, on the pink sheets or on one of the smaller exchanges? I wouldn't do pink sheet, but way? over, but I wouldn't do pink sheet, but I'd do over the counter all day long, sure. Absolutely. Is Absolutely. That what was? Excuse me? Is that what it, Intermix was? Yes. It, all, these companies all start like Akina and Software Tours, we all start at over the counter, and then when you meet the reporting requirements, you go to NASDAQ. That's the, I mean, so... Isn't that the reverse way, though? I mean, don't you want to, like, be a Google and come out and blow the markets away and you've got this big story and everyone's hailing your praises? I mean, is well, that the yes. way you, you start... Yeah, sure, you do. Abso- absolutely you do. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but, but how many... I, I, I think last year there were maybe five IPOs in the United States. And if you're going to be one of those five IPOs, absolutely. But there were probably 250 or 300 reverse mergers in the United States. Hmm. You know, and all of those raised capital. Now, I wouldn't do, you know, having done a lot of reverse mergers, I have a very, um, I have a very defined process for how to do them. And there's obviously a lot, just like any business, there are things to avoid and things to be careful of, and uh, it's not for everybody. But Joe, we're actually coming up to the end of our time here. I'm okay to keep going for another 15 minutes if you'd like to, if you want to keep telling us about how this works, um, depending on you. Sure. I mean, I've, okay. I've, got, uh, I've got time. We can do it. Okay. Uh, um, yeah, so let, let's, tell, let's do 15 minutes. Okay. Um, but, I mean, basically... The reverse merger process is a def- is a defined process where it, it's always done. At least the ones that I do, I always do is what are called triangular mergers, which are, is a combination of capital, mm-hmm. a public vehicle, and the private entity. So I would not go public unless I had enough capital to make sure that the company was able to perform for at least the next year. Mm-hmm. So that's a very important part of the process. So a lot of people are in the business of just selling people public vehicles, and they say, don't worry, we'll raise you money after you go public, and, and that's very often problematic. So I like that. And, and in fact, you know, AOL was a reverse merger. Um, uh, MCI was a reverse merger. Archipelago, the New York Stock Exchange trading system, was a reverse merger. It's a very, very common process because what you do is it's very fast and it bypasses millions of dollars of accounting and legal fees. Because to do an IPO is a very expensive, very time-consuming process. So then the issue, of course, is getting the stock trading. Now, that in itself is its own 
you know, process, but it's, and that's why the CEO has to spend a third of his time talking to aftermarket investors, speaking at investor conferences, things like that. But at the end of the day, management raises money in common stock with no board control, no liquidity preference on the money, and they have a currency that they can go out and build their company. And if they execute on the plan, they'll be rewarded. You know, today, private companies sell at two, three times cash flow. And public companies sell at 20 times cash flow. So you can figure out the difference right there. Why is there such a difference? Why is the difference in the public markets versus the private markets? Well, well, because because full because full value is in fact twenty times cash flow. In the public markets, is giving you know giving credit to the full value. In the private markets, they're giving you discounts because of the fact that you um, you are a private company and there's no competition for that. And so, as a public company, you wouldn't pay twenty times. You wouldn't pay what you're getting in the public markets for a private company. It just wouldn't be worth the acquisition cost. So you have to make that in order to do it. But there's no defined market. Now, sometimes sometimes you can get multiples of revenue. Okay, every once in a while, you have a YouTube. But for every YouTube that you have, which sells it's an infinite multiple of revenues and earnings, you have many, many other companies that either fail or or sell at fractions of fractions of valuation. So if you can create the next YouTube or the next Google or the next Visa through, you know, more, for lack of a better word, traditional methods, I would do that all day long. But for somebody who's created a business that's that's growing at 50% a year, but it's doing 5 or 7 or $8 million of revenue, and says, how am I going to get to $50 million in revenue, and I need to raise a couple of million dollars in working capital, how am I going to do that? The reverse merger is, is, is certainly a viable option. It might be the most attractive option. What kind of companies do you look for? I mean, let's say um, some, some of my guys are doing stuff like the type kind of like Hydrogen, and so they're, they're building, they're kind of building a brand, but at the end of the day, it's really around their sales letter, and um, that can be knocked off or duplicated and that kind of stuff. Do you do you want to work with companies like that, or do you want to, do they need to have a certain type of uh, recurring customer base? I mean, what what constitutes the company you care about? Well, look, it it varies all over the place. I look at companies as disparate as oil and gas companies. I've done a couple of biotech companies, internet companies. Um, uh, it it the the better the the more attractive a company is in the public markets. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I just did a company which uh, supplies um, uh, flat screen panels to automakers and for GPS systems and uh, uh, DVD systems in cars, both to the OEMs and to the uh, aftermarket, retrofit market, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, the company growing 50% a year, very cash flow positive, um, 
and um, helped them raise some money and gave them a little bit of M&A uh, guidance. And it was it, it's a company which, as soon as you say automaker, people's eyes glaze over. And they go, do I want to invest in a company that's selling, you know, people just have this feeling that, that the auto industry is a dead industry. So even though the company is performing really, really well, it's not a sexy industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's uh, having looked at 200 companies over the last 25 years, I can look at the company, the market it's in, and the financial uh, uh, metrics, and I can tell whether a company would be a, a, an easy or a hard one in the public markets. And then it depends really on the on the entrepreneur and what he or she wants to do. Everyone, everyone here reading this is an internet company, um, consumer marketing internet company. Okay. Um, well, that's so a that's very, very that's a very, very hot market. Okay. That's so a very sexy stories. market. So let's let's say um, an example. Let's say someone's doing a, a home. A home business type product is teaching people how to make money from home. It's a very much a general interest mass market. He's got amazing cash flow. Um, he's got to keep an eye on the FTC to make sure that he's not going to get regulatory issues. Right. A company like that, is that the sort of company you can take public? Or do you prefer a, a social networking site? Do you prefer someone that's got a strong yeah, base with you know, 24 month retention? Yes, all of those are either candidates, are either candidates to do reverse mergers or they're candidates to. Uh, be acquired by companies which are trying to do reverse mergers or have done reverse mergers. In other words... Any and all of the above is what you're saying. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, depending on... on The the thing which I, I always try to do is I try to understand what the goal is of the entrepreneur. In other words, is the goal to sell out and go off to the islands is the goal to build something even bigger? You know, what, what is the goal? I've taken this company a, as far as I can by myself, and I need partners to help me. I want to be, you know, uh, um, you know, with Scott's company, we we found a bunch of guys that had grown a company, uh, you know, to a couple of million dollars in revenue, and they were working out of their house and they wanted to go into an office they wanted to be part of a bigger group they they wanted to uh grow the business without having to worry about you know hiring external people and payroll and and all of that they just wanted to focus on their business you know that's it, it it's just a whole bunch of different things so i try to understand what what the goal is of the entrepreneur and then figure out Okay, what's the right financing strategy? What's the right deal? Because at the end of the day, if that guy is not happy or gal is not happy, the deal doesn't work. So I don't try to, it's not like I have a model and I try to cram everybody into that model. I just try to understand what. You don't have a six step step process? No, (laughs) no. The people will always want to see that. I have people say to me all the time, Send me the blueprint. You want to see the blueprint on how to be rich? Is that what you want? They go, yeah, I want to see the step-by-step. And having done, probably done 75 
public M&A transactions, and no two are alike. Not even close. They're all different. Hmm. Um, well, there's obviously a lot of guys who could work with you. Well, you know, I'm on. One, one of the things which one of the things which I love is I love the business of of being in business. So I love to see different businesses anyway. So it's never a burden for me to talk to somebody about their business. What a, let me give you a case study. There's a guy named uh, on my list who's named Dean Graciosi. Um, he's a, a real estate teaches you how to make money in real estate. He's on late night infomercials on TV and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, he's doing about sixty million a year. He's, yeah. you know, it's, it's all built around his personality. He's actually sold the company before. He, he had a bad experience, so he's probably going to be reluctant to sell again. They, um, they did some, they basically milked it very hard and then uh, ended up doing some damage to his name. Um, how would you approach someone like Dean? Well, you know, they, you, now you picked a real tough one. <laughs> That's what I'm uh, here for, Joe. Yeah. Um, I'd have to, I'd really have to understand his business. Okay, um, because the the big danger the the here are the companies that that I've seen that really haven't worked mm-hmm. have been companies which tend to be around a personality. Okay. So for every Martha Stewart, there's a hundred Tommy Lasorda sp- uh, spaghetti sauces, mm-hmm. which went public with a reverse merger. So. Um, you know, I, I tried at E-Universe, I tried to buy Ronco, Ron Popeil, mm-hmm. you know, Vegematic. Yeah, I know him. I read his book. To, yeah. We tried to buy his business, and we, we couldn't get there between what he wanted and, and what we were afraid of was, you know, if we buy his business, what, what you know, is it all Ron? You know, so I have to understand is, is, is this, is the business the guy or is the business the system? If the business well, I can tell is you, the... Okay, I'll give you, I mean, I've, I've done an interview with Dean, so I know his business a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. He has, I think, a total of five employees, one of them who actually works with him on a more or less day-to-day basis, but I think he works out of his house. Um, he has everything running through systems, and it's a lot of it's outsourced through external companies. So although his name's on there and he's working hard to make sure things sell and all, all of that kind of stuff and his personality's over it, um, he, I mean, he's, you know, he's a guy that can spend a lot of time doing whatever he wants because he has, does have it very well organized. Does that kind of business work for you? Yeah. Now, now we're getting closer. Are you familiar with the Learning Annex? Yes. The, okay. So the Learning Annex is a system. It's not the CEO, right? It's Donald Trump. It's, you know all the people he has working for him. Now, uh, th- that business, because it's real estate, is, is in a down cycle. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you know, how to get rich in real estate is, is you know, is, is not a hot topic these days. So, um, you know, I, I tend to be more towards consumer products because at mm-hmm. the end of the day, everybody's buying consumer products like video games are having record years, and if we go in a recession, people spend more money on video games during a recession. Um, so I have to understand the answer. the The short answer is yes, but 
but I'm trying to give you some of the process that I go through in sure. order. And so you're looking for guys that have read the, the E-Myth and have studied that sort of stuff and made things very much uh, systematized. Right, yeah. It's, you, one of the things which I learned at Software Toolworks, Mindscape, was when, when Pearson came in to buy us, I was able to say to them, you're buying the company, you're not buying me. I've done it for 11 years. I've, I, you know, I love you guys, but I don't want to work for you guys. And they were happy with that. They said, I'm buy, we're buying around? a company. They you. Yeah, we're not buying you. How, okay. how, how long did you have to stay around after the acquisition? I, well, actually what happened was I, the, day the, the day the proxy was completed, I handed in my letter of resignation, which they knew. And my guy at Pearson said, um, well, look, we'd really like you to stay. Um, uh, what would it take for you to stay? And I went back to my office and I took a piece of paper and I said, okay, uh, uh, come into the office no more than one day a week. I can work <laughs> on anything I want. I have no direct reports. I do mergers and acquisitions and strategic planning you know, I only report to a, you know, a, a CEO of an organization. You know, I put like eight things down, uh, handwritten on a piece of paper, and I gave it to him, and he initialed it, and he said, "Here, that's your employment contract. Go." Oh, really? So, okay. no, they were great people, and and so I stayed for a year. I actually worked a little bit on the B Sky B transaction. I worked on a bunch of interesting transactions. But I, I, I don't have the mentality. I've done yeah, consulting for very do. big companies. I, I went into Penguin Books was a was a um, was a, a Pearson property. So I went out to Penguin Books, and I said, "Okay, I'd like to find some books that we can mine for video games." So you know, they had Stephen King. You know, I said, "You know, I'd like to do a Stephen King title." They had Tom Clancy. I'd like to do a Tom Clancy title. And and uh, so the guy said, well, tell me a little bit about your business. I told him about the business. He said, well, once the product time the product's done until it hits the market shelf, how long does it take? And I said, well, in the old days, when I really needed the money, it used to take about 24 hours because I'd go down to the disk duplicator and I'd shrink wrap the first three dozen boxes and I'd put them in the trunk of my car and I'd drive them to the retailer. So the box was hot when it got to the shelf because I needed the money. I said, today, you know, we're a little bit bigger, so sometimes it takes, you know, three or four days. And he said, oh, you know, in the printing business, you know, in the book business, we finish the manuscript, and it all goes to the printing press. And then if we can get it out a year afterwards, we've, we've really accelerated the process. And then he said, you know, Stephen King, I don't know. We kind of like Stephen King, uh, but... We really think you ought to do the Royal Viking Opera Guide. That that's that we think would really make a good software product. People look up their favorite opera and who was in it and when it debuted and all that. And so there was just this culture differentiation between what I wanted to do and what they wanted to do. And so after about a year of 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 trying to navigate through that, I just went back to my boss and said, "Look, I've." I've tried and I've done a few deals for you, and he said I understand, and we shook hands. Hmm. So that's 
you know, I, I learned the best thing you can do is plan your obsolescence. You know, is, is when, when a business, uh, what, what, what I always, having, again, started from nothing, I always wanted, I, I never got the feeling until we were a much bigger company that there were things happening in the business unless I made them happen. I don't know if I can describe that. Maybe, you know, maybe you understand a little bit, you know. So, so you know, if, if there were things going on in your business that were happening when you actually weren't doing them, that's when you know you kind of have a company. And, and then the next step is to be able to say, if I went away for six months, the company would still be here, might actually be better if I wasn't here for six months. And so, that goes to one point, maybe you can answer this. Um, one guy that I interviewed about a month ago, he sold his company for, to DoubleClick for about $85 million. And he had to stay for 18 months in an earnout. And, you know, it sounded like it was a fair amount of work. He, he had goals that he had to meet that were aggressive, and it took him a lot of time and effort. Um, another friend of mine um, in London who, who uh, founded a company called Thought that he sold to Verisign for $575 million, and uh-huh. he was the sole owner. Um, he, he, he told me that when he sold, he only had to um, basically hand over the reins and he, he hung around for six months and wasn't really needed and then he just moved on. It, was, it sounded like it was no drama. And so what you're saying there is that the difference is in the level of systematization in the company. Yeah. And frankly, what I like to do, uh, I like the people in the companies, w- w- when I do one of these, like you know, helping Scott here, what I like to do is I like to build a management team with people from all these companies. I'm not looking for companies where you can just jettison the CEO. I like to build them by 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 um, bringing people along with them. So the difference is I don't like earnouts. I like bonuses. So I like to be able to say to people, here's what your business is worth, and we'll pay you that. And now if you stay and you perform and you grow that business, here's how much extra you're going to make. As opposed to saying, well, you know, your business is only worth this much if you hit these numbers and you have to stay for 18 months. Because I've just learned that what happens is then you get into all kinds of arguments. Is it your sales? Is it my sales? How are we going to measure it? Wait a minute. I didn't think I had to pay these accounting charges and pro rata overhead. So I like to try to structure them simply. But with incentives that make sure that people really want to stay. Very good. Um, okay. I don't want to take more of your time. No, um, I appreciate that because I have another. I have some other calls I need. I do need to make. Okay, so that's right. I need you to stay on the phone for a couple of minutes. But um, Joe, thank you very much for your time. Fascinating. All right, my pleasure. 